This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I always liked that 1987 mixed-up tune featuring the Beach Boys and the Fat Boys, and uh, whatever became of the Fat Boys? <laughs> and then, shoot, we're only down to one Wilson brother left among the Beach Boys. At any rate, um, we're hoping there's not going to be a wipeout locally here in San Mateo County regarding the goings-on at Martin's Beach. To quote from the Los Angeles Times editorial board from March 15th. We get it. The tech billionaire Vinod Kostla is annoyed that local authorities and the Coastal Commission demanded that he allow public access through his 89-acre beachfront property in Northern California, continuing a nearly century-long practice of the previous owners. He has battled officials and advocacy groups on this issue for almost a decade, losing more often than not in court after court. But his latest move, petitioning the U.S. Supreme Court to take up his complaint, is one colossal step too far. Said the L.A. Times, asking the high court to declare the California Coastal Act unconstitutional doesn't just threaten a cherished and sound law that establishes the public's access to beaches. It could erode efforts to provide that kind of coastal access across the nation. By way of disclosure, this correspondent does have a dog in this fight. My dad, God bless him, bought a little cabin down at Martins Beach back in the 1980s. My family had been traveling down there for fishing and clamming and hanging out, etc., dating back to the 1930s. So it's been very weird for me to watch, not exactly from the sidelines, I guess, as the gate at the top of the access road got locked, the billboard that used to advertise uh, the beach was painted over. And in a rather extraordinarily hush-hush series of adventures, the property got transferred to a mysterious owner, which we eventually found out was Vinod Kosla. The people down in what I guess you'd have to call this small beach colony are somewhat divided over the issue. There is a respect for Mr. Kosla's right to, I suppose, fend off potential lawsuits from people traveling onto his property, but on the other hand, <laughs> the public does have a right to have access to its beaches. You, the public, own California's beaches, up to the mean high tide level anyway. And just that things get a little sticky when you're trying to separate the rights of the property owner from the rights of the public when it, you're talking about the part of the beach that's above the mean high tide level. This correspondent has long been hoping that something could just be worked out. It would ruffle the minimum amount of feathers. But um, I have to agree with the L.A. Times. Taking this to the Supreme Court in an effort to invalidate the California Coastal Act, 
does sound like it's a bit much. One of the all-time favorite programs we ever conducted here at Radio Parallax, which is available for your listening pleasure on our website at radioparallax.com, was our chat with lawyer Michael Trachtman about his great book, The Supreme's Greatest Hits, which went through some of the more, well, tried to catalog the most notable Supreme Court decisions in the history of the SCOTUS, Supreme Court of the United States. It's no secret that over the years they've made some pretty good decisions, like Brown versus Board of Education or Roe v. Wade, and some pretty bad ones like the Dred Scott decision or Plessy versus Ferguson or Bush v. Gore. I think it might be worth a little slight detour into a look at how bad things can get when stuff gets to the Supreme Court by reviewing the March 5th issue of The Atlantic magazine's article entitled Corporations Are People is built on an incredible 19th century lie. Its subheadline is how a partial series of events in the 1880s produced an enduring and controversial legal precedent. To quote from the piece, somewhat unintuitively, America's corporations today enjoy many of the same rights as American citizens. Both, for instance, are entitled to the freedom of speech and the freedom of religion. How exactly did corporations come to be understood as, quote, people, unquote, bestowed with the most fundamental constitutional rights? The answer can be found in a bizarre, even farcical series of lawsuits over 130 years ago involving a lawyer who lied to the Supreme Court, an ethically challenged justice, and one of the most powerful corporations of the day. The corporation was the Southern Pacific Railroad Company, owned by Robert Barron and former Sacramento grocery owner Leland Stanford. In 1881, after California lawmakers imposed a special tax on railroad property, Southern Pacific pushed back, making the bold argument that the law was an act of unconstitutional discrimination under the 14th Amendment. Now, as you may recall, the 14th Amendment was adopted after the Civil War to protect the rights of freed slaves. That amendment guaranteed to every, quote, person, unquote, the, quote, equal protection of the laws, unquote. Stanford's railroad argued that it was a person, too, reasoning that just as the Constitution prohibited discrimination on the basis of racial identity, so did it bar discrimination against Southern Pacific on the basis of its corporate identity. Noted The Atlantic, the head lawyer representing Southern Pacific was a man named Roscoe Conkling. And if you've never heard the name Roscoe Conkling... You haven't read very deeply into American history. The Atlantic notes he was the leader of the Republican Party for more than a decade, and he was so much more than that. Conkling had even been nominated to the Supreme Court twice. He begged off twice, the second time after the Senate had confirmed him. He remains the last person to turn down a Supreme Court seat after winning confirmation. More than most lawyers in the United States, Conkling was seen by the Supreme Court justices as a peer. Note of the Atlantic, it was a trust Conkling would betray. As he spoke before the court on Southern Pacific's behalf, Roscoe Conkling recounted an astonishing tale. In the 1860s, he said, when he was a young congressman, Conkling had served on the drafting committee that was responsible for writing the 14th Amendment. Then, the last member of the committee still living, Conkling told the justices 
that the drafters had changed the wording of the amendment, replacing, quote, citizens, unquote, with, quote, persons, unquote, in order to cover corporations too. Laws referring to persons, he said, have by long and constant acceptance been held to embrace artificial persons as well as natural persons. Conkling buttressed his account with a surprising piece of evidence, a musty old journal he claimed was a previously unpublished record of the deliberations of the drafting committee. Years later, historians would discover that Conkling's journal was real, but his story was a fraud. The journal was in fact a record of the Congressional Committee's deliberations, but upon close examination offered no evidence that the drafters intended to protect a corporation. In fact, it showed that the language of the Equal Protection Clause was never changed from citizen to person. So far as anyone can tell, the rights of corporations were not raised in the public debates over the ratification of the 14th Amendment or in any of the state's ratifying conventions. And, prior to Conkling's appearance on behalf of Southern Pacific, no member of the drafting committee had ever suggested that corporations were covered. Noted the Atlantic, there is reason to suspect Conkling's deception was uncovered back in his time, too. The justices held onto the case for three years without ever issuing a decision until Southern Pacific unexpectedly settled the case. Then, Shortly after, another case from Southern Pacific reached the Supreme Court raising the exact same legal questions. The company had the same team of lawyers, with the exception of Roscoe Conkling. Tellingly, Southern Pacific's lawyers omitted any mention of Conkling's drafting history or his journal. Had those lawyers believed Conkling, it would have been legal malpractice to leave out his story. <sighs> and this just gets better. When the court issued its decision on the second case, the justices expressly declined to decide if corporations were people. The dispute could be and was resolved on other grounds, prompting an angry rebuke from one justice, Stephen J. Field, who castigated his colleagues for failing to address, quote, the most important constitutional questions involved, unquote. He also wrote, at the present day, nearly all great enterprises are conducted by corporations, and they deserve to know if they had equal rights to. Noted the Atlantic, rumored to carry a gun with him at all times, the colorful field was the only sitting justice ever arrested, and the charge was murder. The magazine notes he was innocent, but nonetheless guilty of serious ethical violations in the Southern Pacific cases, at least by modern standards. A confidant of Leland Stanford Field had advised the company on which lawyers to hire for this very series of cases. Field had advised the company on which lawyers to hire for this very series of cases, and thus should have recused himself from them. He refused, and even worse, while the first case was pending, he covertly shared internal memoranda of the justices with Southern Pacific's legal team. Attempting to mitigate this slightly, the Atlantic notes that the rules of judicial ethics were not well-developed in the Gilded Age, and the self-assured field who feared the forces of socialism did not hesitate to weigh in. Taxing the property of railroads differently, he said, was like allowing deductions for property owned by white men or by old men and not deducted if owned by black men or young men. So, noted the Atlantic with field on the court, still more twists were yet to come. 
The Supreme Court's opinions are officially published in volumes edited by an administrator called The Reporter of Decisions. By tradition, the reporter writes up a summary of the court's opinions and includes it at the beginning of the opinion. The reporter in the 1880s was J.C. Bancroft Davies, whose wildly inaccurate summary of the Southern Pacific case said the court had ruled that, quote, corporations are persons within dot, 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 the 14th Amendment, end quote. Noted the Atlantic, whether his summary was an error or something more nefarious, Davis had once been the president of the Newburgh and New York Railway Company, will likely never be known. Nonetheless, Justice Field saw Davis's erroneous summary as an opportunity. A few years later, in an opinion in an unrelated case, Field wrote that, quote, corporations are persons within the meaning of the 14th Amendment. It was so held in Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad, unquote. Field knew very well the court had done no such thing, but his gambit worked. In the following years, the case would be cited over and over by courts across the nation, including the Supreme Court, for deciding that corporations had rights under the 14th Amendment. At this point in time, I probably should pause to quote from the actual 14th Amendment. And uh, there were actually three amendments to the Constitution enacted in the immediate wake of the U.S. Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and 15th. The 13th more or less said slavery was out. The 15th said you couldn't be denied the right to vote because you'd formerly been a slave. And the 14th had five different sections to it. Oh, section 1 opens by saying all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Section 2 then demands that representation of the various districts in the country be made according to this new designation that had to count slaves as actual citizens. Section 3 more or less says you couldn't hold office if you rose up against the United States, meaning like you're a part of the Confederacy. Section 4 has to do with debts, which has no bearing here. And Section 5 just says Congress has the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. Basically, it was about saying that former slaves were now persons who had rights, and the government had to take that into account. Back to the article. Indeed, the faux precedent in the Southern Pacific case would go on to be used by a Supreme Court that in the early 20th century became famous for striking down numerous economic regulations, including federal child labor laws, zoning laws, and wage and hour laws. Yes, courtesy of this Supreme Court decision and its faux precedent. Meanwhile, noted the magazine, in cases like the notorious Plessy v. Ferguson, 1896, those same justices refused to read the Constitution as protecting the rights of African Americans, the real intended beneficiaries of the 14th Amendment. Between 1868, when the amendment was ratified, and 1912, the Supreme Court would rule on 28 cases involving the rights of African Americans, versus an astonishing 312 cases on the rights of corporations. The article closes by noting that the day back in 1882, when the Supreme Court first heard Roscoe Conkling's argument, the New York Daily Tribune featured a story on the case with a headline that would turn out to be prophetic, quote, civil rights of corporations, unquote. Indeed, they note, in a feat of deceitful legal alchemy, 
Southern Pacific and his wily legal team had, with the help of an audacious Supreme Court justice, set up the 14th Amendment to be more of a bulwark for the rights of businesses than the rights of minorities. And given the current makeup of the Supreme Court, including the political shenanigans of the Republicans denying Barack Obama the right to appoint someone to the Supreme Court and holding it over for Donald Trump, who managed to get Neil Gorsuch on board, well, we're hoping that the Supreme Court does not take up the case of Vinod Kosla. I've been advised by a lawyer in the know that the basic statistical possibility that they would take up such a petition would normally be something on the order of, I don't know, 30 to 1 against, something like that. But given what's currently going on in politics, well, I'm nervous, that's all. It's also gotten a lot of attention in the Bay Area of late that the Trump administration is bringing a new level of scrutiny to a temporary work visa popular among technology firms, costing employers more time and money as they seek to bring foreign workers to the United States. This, of course, has to do with the H-1B visa program. The administration is arguing, perhaps dubiously, that the visa program is uh, costing American jobs. It's perhaps more accurate to say that it would save corporations a lot of money by having to spend more for their jobs. The East Bay Times notes that Silicon Valley tech firms and other employers argue that they need more H-1B visas, which are limited to 85000 annually to hire talent they can't find in the U.S. Some lawmakers and unions have raised concerns that companies are using the visa program to replace American workers with cheaper labor. Indian outsourcing firms such as Infosys, Ypro, and Tech Mahindra that rely heavily on H-1B visas paid lower average salaries in fiscal year 2016 compared with U.S. tech firms such as Google, Apple, Intel, and Microsoft. Now, this case does get into a lot of legal complications about uh, scrutiny of the people that are being brought over and why they're being brought over, etc., etc. I don't want to go into any of that, mainly because I haven't read the articles closely enough. But I do know that if you will take the time to drive around a place like, say, Fremont, California, now part of Silicon Valley... You will note, shall we say, a profound change in the population, which seems to be related in no small part due to the H-1B visa program. And I have nothing against people coming over here from India or China to work. I simply don't have enough knowledge to know whether there are enough American workers to fill the positions needed in the tech industry. That I do not know, but I am pretty sure, again, professing expertise, but I am pretty sure that a major reason we see so many of these folks over here is the fact that they cost less to the tech corporations. We'll try and do a little digging on that in the months to come and report back to you, dear listener. In other visa-related news, we have this amusing small item. Melania Naus got granted a green card while she was dating her future husband in 2001. Melania Kaus is better known today as Melania Trump. And she got her green card back in 01 under the elite EB-1 program. This is the so-called Einstein visa, custom designed for scientists, authors, multinational business executives, Olympic athletes, and other professionals who can demonstrate, quote, sustained national and international acclaim. Naus, described by the Washington Post as a then-obscure model, was one of the 1% of immigrants who received green cards that year through 
the EB-1 program. Do you suppose Mr. Trump pulled some strings back in 2001? We don't have any proof, but we have our suspicions. I I mean, I'm sure Melania did make a, a very fetching model back in 2001. But it is clear she is not a scientist, author, multinational or business executive, Olympic athlete, or other professional who can demonstrate sustained national and international acclaim. That description, however, would have fit for the late Stephen Hawking, who passed last week at age 76. Without a doubt, Stephen Hawking had become a globally celebrated symbol of the power of the human mind. I remember first reading about Stephen Hawking back in the 70s. As is well known, he suffered from a degenerative motor neuron disease similar to amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or Lou Gehrig's disease. At age 21, he was given two years to live by his doctors. But Hawking not only found the strength to complete his doctorate and rise to the position of Lucasian Professor of Mathematics at the University of Cambridge, the same post held by Isaac Newton 300 years earlier, he went on from there to become one of the planet's most renowned science popularizers. What impressed people so much when I first read about him was that at that time he was unable to use his muscles to write. Therefore, he would carry on calculations in his head that astounded people. And he would astound a lot more people before he was through. He wrote the international bestseller, A Brief History of Time, in 1988, which delved into the origin and ultimate fate of the universe. He deliberately set out to write a mass market primer on an often incomprehensible subject. Hawking became the subject of a 1991 documentary, A Brief History of Time, directed by Errol Morris, and of course countless newspaper and magazine articles. With the aid of a voice synthesizer controlled by his fingers on a keyboard, he gave speeches around the world from Chile to China. He played himself on such TV programs as Star Trek, The Next Generation, and The Simpsons. (laughs) Apparently, in The Simpsons episode, he told Homer... Your theory of a donut-shaped universe is interesting, Homer. I may have to steal it. Our regular contributor, Donald Rose, informed me some time back that he also apparently appeared on the Colbert program, wherein Colbert asked questions about these, this theory of alternate universes, asking him, is it possible there's an alternate universe where I'm smarter than you? Evidently, Hawking shot back with, yes, that is possible. Also, one in which you are funny. For the record, Radio Parallax expresses skepticism that there is any universe out there in which Stephen Colbert is funny. Donald also noted to his amazement that Stephen Hawking was born 300 years after Galileo and would leave this world on the same date that Albert Einstein did. For his part, Hawking always downplayed the, uh, the idea that he was the second coming of Albert Einstein. He insisted that his reputation had gotten out of control through media hype, saying, I fit the part of a disabled genius, he told the LA Times in 1990. At least I'm disabled, even though I'm not a genius like Einstein. The public wants heroes. They made Einstein a hero, and now they're making me a hero, though with much less justification. Hawking's scientific achievements include breakthroughs and understandings about the extreme conditions of black holes, objects so dense that not even light can escape their gravity. His most famous theoretical breakthrough 
was to find an exception to the seemingly unforgiving law of physics. Black holes are not really black, he realized, but rather can emanate thermal radiation from subatomic processes at their boundary and can eventually evaporate. Scientists refer to such theoretical emanations as Hawking radiation. This revelation impressed other scientists with the way it took Einstein's general theory of relativity, which is essential for understanding the gravity of black holes, and connected it to newer theories of quantum mechanics, which cover subatomic particles. Plus, he threw in a dash of old-fashioned thermodynamics, achieving a kind of physics trifecta. You know, we love the way Stephen Hawking embraced uh, the attention that he got and, and loved life. He traveled around the world. He met with presidents. He visited Antarctica and Easter Island, and he flew on the special zero-gravity jet whose parabolic flight let Hawking float through the cabin as if he were in outer space. Stephen Hawking, we salute you. All right, in the three minutes we have left, I think I'll do two more obituaries and then one and hold one over for our second segment. Some months back, Rose Marie passed away. She was best known to the public, I would say, uh, for her role as writer Sally Rogers on, on the 1960s sitcom The Dick Van Dyke Show. She appeared on all five seasons of the show and earned three Emmy nominations for her work. She never left the public eye, becoming a frequent guest on the Hollywood Squares. She was reportedly an avid Twitter user with more than 125,000 followers. But what intrigues me about Rosemary was the fact that she was a child star who won a talent contest at the age of three and was soon singing professionally under the name Baby Rosemary. If you go to YouTube and pull up uh, an example of her singing as a small child, I think you, like the public, as I certainly was, will be surprised at her voice. And we would also like to note the passing of Dr. Roger Bannister, the world-famous neurologist. He worked for several national and international sporting bodies because before he became a world-famous neurologist, he was a runner. And back on May 6, 1954, Roger Bannister worked a morning shift as a medical student at St. Mary's Hospital in London and then went down to, to the track in Oxford and then went down to a track in Oxford and became the first human being to break the four-minute mile. He retired from running after that astonishing accomplishment. Like, within a year, he, he did so and concentrated on medicine. He would later say, Running was just a small part of my life. My career is a greater source of satisfaction than happening to move my body at a certain speed for a few moments in 1954. At any rate, Dr. Roger Bannister, we salute you as well, sir. Let us... Take a short break. We got plenty more in the second half. Don't go away.